Jesus, make up my dying bed. That was a theme that was pretty prominent in my early years, particularly my early years of elementary school. Between my third and fifth grade, I went to a Baptist school in Long Beach, California, where we lived. And every Friday morning, we had chapel. And it probably wasn't every Friday morning, but on a a large number of them, there was an altar call. And the altar call was basically, uh, you're a sinner, and if you were to die today and you didn't accept Jesus as your personal Savior, then you would go to hell. And I heard that numerous times per year. And on many of those times when we were invited to pray the sinner's prayer, I did that. And then there were the summer youth camps, which were full of sport and fun and other kids, and then always on a Thursday night, the last night, there was the campfire. Probably some of you have experienced this. And it was dark, and there was, of course, the fire burning. And there was the evangelistic message, which concluded with the same kind of an altar call that you're a sinner, and if you would accept Jesus as your personal Savior, then you would escape the fires of hell, which, of course, were burning right in front of you. I still remember very clearly being in a stadium in Los Angeles in 1963. I don't know if it was Angel Stadium or I don't know which stadium it was. A Billy Graham crusade. I was there with my father, way, way, way in the back, way in the upper, way in the upper, way far away. And Billy Graham, as he always did, gave the same kind of an altar call. You're a sinner. And if you were to die without accepting Jesus as your personal Savior, then you would appear before the judgment seat of God. And then uh, if you had not accepted Jesus as your Savior, then you would not go to heaven, but you would go to hell. And I remember I did the same thing again. I prayed the prayer, gave my heart to the Lord. I was going to go forward. My my dad told me it was just way too far. I I was a little boy. I was eight or nine or ten, something like that. I don't remember. It was too far, so I did it in my seat. I didn't get to go forward with the rest of the hundreds that were doing that. This idea of Jesus as Savior, as you can tell, has a deep, is, a, is, a, is an important theme and has deep roots in my life. And it's been a fundable, fundamental part, not only of my personal life, but also obviously being a minister of my professional life. For as long as I can remember. And it's right here in this particular theme that a lot of my deconstruction, which is now almost 40 years old, has taken place. And so I've, as I read this chapter again this week a couple of times and have uh, wrestled with this sermon, I'll call it, it's been a pretty difficult process. Because on the one hand, I do not want to call in question at all, in any way, the motives, sincere faith, sincere love of Jesus, of the community in which I grew up. I just simply do, I can't do that. It's just, it's just 
wouldn't be right to do it. But on the other hand, I, I've learned and I've, I've grown, I think, and it, it's been a difficult and sometimes painful process emotionally, uh, mentally, physically, and vocationally. Today's going to be a little bit of a free flow. I've tried to keep myself within some bounds here, but it's going to be a little bit of a free flow. And I just want to say this. If you sense some anger, or if you sense some dismay, or if you sense some frustration or sadness, or not enough nuance, then I just ask you to be patient with me and just say, that's just where I am this morning, and please feel free to engage me if you think you need to. What does it mean that Jesus saves? Well, some of you may be familiar with what's often called the four steps to salvation. Step one, God made you and wants to have a relationship with you, or he has a wonderful plan for your life, but your sin separates you from God. Jesus took the punishment that your sins deserved, so if you repent from your sins and trust him for your salvation, you will be forgiven, justified, accepted freely by grace, indwelt with his Spirit until you die and go to heaven. Others of you may be familiar with what's been known as Evangelism Explosion, which was started by um, a preacher in the South whose name I can't come up with at this moment. Um, but it's a whole program of learning how to evangelism, learning how to evangelize. And it starts off with this question. So you're, when you meet someone and talk to someone, even if it's for the very first time, even if you've knocked on the door and that person opens the door, that your goal is as quickly as possible, being polite, of course, to get to this question. Do you know for sure that you would go to heaven when you die? And the person often would say, yes, or I don't know. And then the next question is, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And the person would usually give an answer, well, I've done lots of good things. And then you would go into a whole explanation of the gospel about how your good works aren't enough to get you into heaven. And in fact, you don't really do any good works at all. Most of us here in this group may be more familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, we all probably know by heart, what is your only comfort in life and death that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? The second question is, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? In other words, how can you get this comfort for yourself? And here's the answer to the question. First... How great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins. And third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. 
And it's interesting that the word Savior only appears about six times in the Heidelberg Catechism. And it appears mostly in Sunday 11. And one of the questions in Sunday 11 is this. Since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment which is the likely definition of salvation for the Heidelberg, and be again received into favor? And the answer is, God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. Those are the traditional viewpoints of what salvation means. And if you've read Diana Butler Bass's chapter on Jesus as Savior in her book, you've, you've heard those themes come through. And hopefully, you've maybe heard her ask some questions about those themes. And I'd like to pick out three of them this morning with you. The first theme is that in the traditional theology, being human is presented as actually being bad news. You remember that she mentions Augustine. The entire, I'm quoting, the entire human race is a mass demnata, a condemned mass, mired in self-gratification, pride, and lust, as guilty for their sins as Adam had been for his, because Adam's stain was imprinted on each and every human ever born. We are completely helpless to ever choose the good. We are completely helpless to ever choose the good. And the penalty for sin is death and hell. And you probably remember this verse from Isaiah 64. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's a pretty tough message. I remember in Amsterdam, about 19 years ago, maybe I've told this story before, we had an evening for people that we had been contacting on the street, people who were not particularly committed to the Christian faith, And the theme of this evening was forgiveness. And I gave a short little 10-minute talk on forgiveness and then opened it up to discussion. And one of the ladies who was group was one of the people from outside. And I give her all the credit in the world for doing this in a group of which she knew literally no one. Told us very briefly that she had been abused by her father as a young girl. And that it had taken her years and years, and that she was still working on it, but she was still, but she was in the process of forgiving her father. And one of our team members said, and I, I'm not quoting that person exactly, but the, 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 the meaning of the message was if you're not a Christian, If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you aren't working out of his grace, then that forgiveness is fundamentally flawed. 
we are completely helpless to ever choose the good. And Diana makes the case, as do many theologians, that that's not a very accurate picture. We are not just sinners. We are sinned against. We are victims. We are alienated and estranged. We are suffering. We are lost. We are lonely. And we are homeless. And all of these things can happen to us. And what often happens when there's the idea that I am not capable of any good works and not understanding that I am a victim, then when something bad happens to me, when someone else perpetrates some kind of sin or abuse to me, I am called upon by the Christian community to forgive. And I don't know if you remember, if you read the chapter, hopefully you did, In the bottom of one of the pages, page 75, I believe, there's this one sentence of Diana's. And when I read this six months ago for the first time, it took my breath away. Here's what she said. She was in a conversation with a a man named Phil from her church, and the man named Phil was talking to her about praying the sinner's prayer. And she writes, I did not tell Phil how my uncle, after he arrived from Baltimore to visit, used to invade my bedroom at night. No, I did not sin. I was sinned against. And even at 15, however, I was smart enough to figure out that Phil would say that my lack of forgiveness to my uncle was a sin. It is true that we are desperate sinners. But that is nowhere near the only truth. It's not even, and I beg to differ with the Heidelberg Catechism, it's not even the first truth. And I went through years as a young child, almost every Friday, knowing and feeling that someone was going to tell me that I was a sinner. And that if I didn't pray the right words on my dying day, on my dying bed, I was going to meet an angry God. Because I was such a terrible sinner. And embedded in that message is the idea that we are then saved from. So think about this to yourself. What are we saved from? If Jesus is our Savior, what are we saved from? And at the heart of that message that I at least got, and I know many, 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 many thousands, tens, hundreds, millions of people, is that we are saved 
from God's wrath. Jesus saves us from God's eternal wrath. No one is without sin, no one. God hates sin, and anyone who sinned would be banished from God's sight forever. Evangelism explosion. On what basis would God accept you into his heaven instead of sending you to hell? The most important question, the first question to ask and answer is how are you going to deal with the wrath of God when that dying day comes? And I've had this happen a lot when I, when I, when I talk to people about it, when I talk to Christians about it, and especially... I'll just say the older generation than me, it's still there. People tend to deny it. That's not really what the message was. But it was. In many, many cases. What are you saved from? The wrath of God. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopalian pastor wrote just an absolutely tremendous book called The Crucifixion. I highly recommend it to you if you're interested in some theological writing. It's about 550 pages long, so it's a pretty thick book. Uh, But it's just magnificent. Here's what she says about the atonement. The purpose of the atonement was not to bring about a change in God's attitude toward his rebellious creatures. God's attitude toward us has always and ever been the same. Judgment against sin is preceded, preceded, accompanied, and followed by God's mercy. There was never a time when God was against us. Even in his wrath, he is for us. Yet at the same time, he's not for us without wrath, wrath, because his will is to destroy all that is hostile to perfecting his world. The paradox of the cross demonstrates the victorious love of God for us at the same time that it shows his judgment upon sin. She's not saying God has no wrath. That wrath is a cleansing wrath. It's not retributive. It's not a punishing wrath. It's a restorative wrath. And just about 20 years ago, I had a conversation, I remember, with a a lady who was a colleague of mine at the mission that I was serving at. And this lady was right at that time um, caring for her father who was literally on his deathbed. That deathbed lasted a couple of weeks. And she was, her father was not a professing Christian. So she was witnessing to him. And she was trying to talk to him about what was now going to happen after he died. And we had a fairly lengthy conversation. She was literally in tears because she was afraid that her father was not going to get the message and was not going to do what needed to be done before he passed away. And I don't remember if I said this to her, 
And if I did, I hope I said it very gently. But my thought was, I understand how important that is. But you are so overwhelmed by the wrath of God that's going to fall on your father after his death that you are not able to say goodbye to him. You are not talking with him about all the wonderful things that happened in your relationship together, about how good of a father he was, and about how he loved you. And you're not able to thank him for that. And you're not able to listen to his stories about what it was like to raise you as a girl and as a young lady. And you're not able to be honest about the pain that you did to each other. And you're not able to forgive each other. You're, you're, you're putting away, ignoring a whole life because of your intense fear of what's going to happen in the, in the, in the, in the time of dying. And the third thing is that we have learned that salvation is a transaction. We're eternally separated from God because of our sins. God is then a judge. We cannot be, I'm quoting Diana now, we cannot be in the same room, the same house, or even the same universe with God without some kind of God-initiated atonement. And the vision of God that lies under this story is that God is angry with mankind and must have that rage assuaged. That's a fancy word for uh, taken care of or paid for. It's a primal human worry that God hates us and will do us in, and we must do something, anything, to make God happy, to keep Him from punishing and getting rid of us altogether. The atonement, and I'm still quoting Diana, is a sacred quid pro quo. God forgives in exchange for an offering of blood. Salvation's this, for someone else's that. And that is embedded so deeply in us. This idea of a transaction. That it turns out that most all of our other relationships are built on a transaction. I will only love you. I will only serve you. I'll only care for you. When you do this or when you do that. Or when I get something in return in its ugliest format. If you look deeply at many of your relationships, you will find out that they are rooted in transaction. And that's why when someone doesn't do what you want them to do, you get mad and take your toys and leave the sandbox. As do I. Salvation, says Diana, is not a transaction to get to heaven after death. Rather, it is an experience of love 
and beauty and paradise even now. She says, Jesus was saving all kinds of people before he even got to the cross. He was healing, he was forgiving, he was raising from the dead. All the way from children to slaves to peasants to soldiers to rich people. The salvation was, was happening because Jesus was there. And it was happening in the daily life. And not based on some transaction. You, I, I hope you know that my favorite, 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 favorite words from Jesus on the cross are these. He's hanging on that cross. And he's, he says to God, Father, forgive them for they do, not what, they do not know what they're doing. There's no transaction there. He's not saying, for God, Father, forgive them if they believe or do this. Just a few minutes ago, I referred to that sentence in Diana's book about her uncle who came into her bedroom. A couple pages later, in another little sentence that also takes your breath away, she says, and I fixed the bedroom door. Yep, Jesus saved me with a little help from Yale Locks. And in both of those sentences, of course, just little sentences, is such a world of pain and abuse and sin and salvation. Just a little aside, because this topic is on the table now. If any of you who are listening to me are being abused in any way, Call the police, or call the child helpline, or talk to a trusted adult, and I'm available. Don't let it go on. And if you know of anybody who is abusing anybody, especially a child, call the police, or call the helpline or talk to me, or some other responsible adult. Do not let it go on for one more second. The Bible Project has made a video, and it's called Generosity. And it's a whole other way of framing the gospel story. You know, this gospel story that we have gotten is so Im deeply embedded in us, and it's so deeply embedded in words that we know, and it's, it, it's so much a part of our being for many of us, that's very hard for us to think about it differently because we always twist it back into our old paradigms. So I'd like us to watch this video and just... Try to understand the gospel story from a quite different perspective. It's called generosity.
Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive, and there's lots of people, decorations, food, and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host, and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture. But... It's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world. Under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over. It's turned into a battleground. But God wants humans to experience his generosity. And so he chooses one people, the family of Abraham. And he promises to give them the abundance that he wants for everybody else. God will provide what they need. All they have to do is trust his generosity. And through them, the whole world will see how generous the host really is. But that's not what happens. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, enter a land of abundance, and they promptly forget the host who gave it to them. They act like it's all theirs, and like there's not enough. And it leads to war and Israel's self-destruction. If I were the host of this party, I think I'd just give up. But God doesn't give up. What he does is surprising. He gives another gift. Another gift? Yeah, but this gift is different. What God gives is himself. All right, and Jesus, the host himself, comes to join in on the spoil party. And notice, Jesus lives with the conviction that there is enough and that our generous host can be trusted. His mindset of abundance allowed him to live sacrificially and generously, even towards his enemies. And Jesus called his followers to trust in God's abundance like him. And that's why he said things like, sell your possessions and give to the poor, or don't worry about your life. He's inviting us to live by a different story, one that is built on trust in God's goodness and love. But living generously doesn't mean life is going to go well. I mean, look at Jesus. He was betrayed by his friends, and he suffered. And this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew that people would take advantage of his generosity. In fact, that was his plan. Really? Yeah, think about it. Jesus knows that we're all hopelessly deceived by this lie that there's not enough. Yeah, that lie needs to be defeated. And so that's what Jesus was doing when he gave us the gift of his life. Jesus' death was the ultimate expression of God's generous love. Yeah, God's love can turn death into life and scarcity back into abundance. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, 
You know the gift of our Lord Jesus the Messiah, that even though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And Jesus called his followers to live like the real party has begun. Yes, he called it the kingdom of God. And our invitation to this party is yet another gift, the personal presence of God's own spirit that can teach us how to trust the generosity of the host, just like Jesus did. And when you believe there's enough, you start seeing opportunities for generosity everywhere with our time and money, our attention. Yes, one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is the generous host. I would like to conclude by reading with you Psalm 103. And as I read this psalm, and it will show up on your screen, I'd like you to just think of it with this video in the back of your head and some of the things we've talked about this morning, because these themes just are all over this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, it's there, absolutely, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies with good, and another translation talks about your longings that are satisfied, Those good longings that you have as a person created in the image of God are satisfied so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all. How many is all who are oppressed? He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. I do not know of a clearer way to say it. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us transaction according to our iniquities. There's no transaction here. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And now you think, oh, here it is. You have to fear him first. Uh Uh-oh, here it comes. Let me just remind you that Jesus said, But I, when I be lifted up, John 12, I will draw all to myself. And Paul says in in, in Philippians 2, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And Paul says in Colossians 1, Through Christ... God is reconciling to himself all things. There's going to come a point when everybody 
is going to fear God. As clear as it can be. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. They're there, but he moves them away. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows. He remembers that we are dust. And he's a father. He's not an angry judge. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments... There you're thinking, okay, you have to do that first. It's the other way around. When, you're in, when, when you understand that God love, loves you, and that His anger will not last forever, and that His love is as wide as the ocean, as wide as from the east to the west, then you will keep His commandments and keep His covenants. And then when that word covenant is the idea of this marriage covenant, it's a relationship. The Lord has established his throne in the kingdoms, in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, what? All his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And to the extent, this is my own personal testimony, to the extent you move away from this fundamental idea that we have to do with an angry God who demands something from us, whether it be just faith, or just works, or faith and works, or whatever combination of that you may have been taught. The further you move away from that, the more you're enthralled and encaptured by the love of God that's been shown to us in Jesus Christ. And the more freedom comes, and the ability to be perfectly, brutally honest about who we are and the problems we get ourselves into, as well as deeply and extremely hopeful. Because God has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all, and that has the last word. Dear people of God, do not live in fear. Do not live in fear. Live deeply rooted in the love of this God for you, for all of his creation, and not just the people, but everything that he has made. Amen.